Morning, guys. Morning. Sweet to worship with you. Sweet to sing with you. Hope you're hearing your voices. Let's open our Bibles to the Psalter. Psalm 126. Happy to report we had a great week at Crystal Springs Camp in North Dakota. Had a, uh, the privilege of teaching the junior high campers there. It's probably close to 300 kids, which was awesome to have in the room. Um, uh, Carrie, our whole family went. We stayed in the boys' dorm on the bottom floor. So you can imagine maybe what that was like. I remember being one of those campers, and for some reason it's like, I mean, I think they were drinking Red Bulls, so that may have something to do with it, but yeah. Like if they liked the message, the, the, the counselors gave them less caffeine. If they didn't like it, they gave them more, sort of a merit system for us. But no, it was great. Uh, we had a great experience. I know many of you have happy memories and have had a great impact done in your life through the camp, and I can see why. Uh, it was really wonderful, and wonderful people, solid Bible-based teaching. Um, so yeah, we, we had a great time. Thanks for praying for us. Let's read Psalm 126 together. <clears throat> when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we come in the name of Jesus and through his mediation, only because the veil was torn through the cross, are we able to approach the Holy of Holies with confidence, boldness, and not be struck dead. We come by the power of the Spirit at work and living, dwelling, filling all those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ. So, Father, we come needy, helpless, and asking you for grace and forgiveness. Lord, we are thankful and we are mindful of our country today, uh, the many blessings, just common grace blessings that you have seen fit to bestow on us in this age of the world, in this uh, time of, of our country. It's a unique time. It's, it's unusual in the history of the world. If you just study history a little bit, we see how unusual this time is and the, the many blessings that we experience here. And we are thankful we are very thankful. We're thankful for those who serve and protect our country. We thank, we're thankful for those who serve and protect our communities. Um, just a basic level of safety that we don't wake up most days uh, worried about the big things, being invaded by a foreign country, having to be refugees, soldiers knocking on our door. Um, Lord, that's a gift. That's a blessing that so many in the world don't receive, and we don't know why. It's not anything we did. We're not special. Uh, it's just your providence and your wisdom. 
We pray for our country. We pray for our president. We ask that you grant him wisdom, divine wisdom. We ask that you would be working through his conscience to do what his conscience, the the natural law within him, tells him is right and that he would not violate his conscience. But he would be responsive to what is good and what is evil, to reward what is good and to punish what is evil. That is your purpose for the state. We pray for all of our leaders that you might give them a spirit of wisdom. We pray especially for those who are Christians serving in government, serving in the military, serving in all branches, our Supreme Court, our our court system. Uh, We pray a special protection, a special courage for them to follow their convictions, to follow the word, to serve with excellence, to represent and witness to who you are. And Lord, we, we fall back and we are comforted by the fact that the kingdom of God is not dependent on any country, on any constitution, on any good law or bad law, on any corrupt government or good government. Lord, it is dependent on the word and the spirit. Nothing, nothing can stop your kingdom from coming. Nothing. What are the kingdoms of this world? You mock them. You laugh at them when they shake their fist at you. And so, Lord, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be worried for one second about this country. Because your kingdom is coming. And we pray, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, Lord, may we be a people of unbreakable and unshakable faith, not in our country ultimately, but in you. We thank you for this holy word, Psalm 126, and I pray, Father, that you would speak to your people through it. Help me. I need it. In Jesus' name, amen. We're ascending into God's presence through the Psalms of Ascent, and we come to another musical note today in the Psalter, joy. Joy. I think it's worth noting for for this Psalm to be in the canon of Scripture, it means on a basic level that God wants joy for your life. He wants you to be joyful. He wants to give you that gift. That's his intention. Even the deep trials that they would achieve a deep joy. His intention is not misery. His goal is not sadness. The pain and the problems are all meant to be stepping stones on the path to joy. That's their purpose in the life of a believer. That's what they're there for. That's why things happen that are hard. God has joy ahead of it for you, and some of you need to hear this. Wherever you're at today, whatever happened this week, God's vision for your life is not a heavy heart, it's a light heart. It's a heart filled with joy. And you say, well, huh, that's hard to believe. If that's God's intention, I don't want to be blasphemous, but He's not doing a great job. Here's where there can be confusion. Joy in the Bible is not happiness. 
Joy in the Bible is not happiness. Happiness is based on earthly circumstances, which we're always thankful for when God gives those good things in our life. But happiness can be taken from you when your circumstances aren't good. Joy cannot be taken from you. Joy is based on heavenly realities that are fixed and firm, solid. Joy is like a beautiful flower that you place in a steel safe. Nothing can touch it. You can do your worst. Burn the building down. Burn my life down. You cannot touch it. It's safe because it's rooted in God. Not in the changing, temporary, finite things of life, but in the eternal, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. My promises are sure, God. Here's the big idea in Psalm 126. In God's hands, sorrow produces joy. In God's hands, sorrow produces joy. Not just sorrow leads to joy. It produces it. It produces it. In other words, every pain in your life is pregnant with joy. You don't know how, you don't know when, but it's going to give birth. It will, and you have to know that. I mean, young people, okay, you're going to go through some things. Maybe you haven't. When I was in my early 20s, honestly, I hadn't gone through a whole lot. But I wish, I wish I had this deeper in my bones when I was going through my 20s, going through my 30s, that when pain, when hard things came into my life, okay, I have to see those as though God has joy for me greater than the sorrow lying ahead. It's, it's hard. It's hard to see that when you're in the middle of it. But it's true. Not just joy, but joy that exceeds the pain. That's just who God is. I want to try to convince you of that today. That is who God is. Let me try to illustrate the principle for you. One of my daughters loves pandas. Loves pandas. I'm not sure why, but she loves them. Just We were driving in Sioux Falls the other day, and she saw the sign for Panda Express. And she said with trembling, Daddy, do they serve pandas at Panda Express? I said, no, baby, I don't know what the meat is exactly, but it's not panda. I can tell you that. That's just to to set the context for the actual story. So we're driving in Sioux Falls. Another time we go out to eat, and all the kids bring their stuffed animals into the restaurant. They bring them into the bathroom, which is gross, but that's what they did. I didn't know. We get back in the car. We're driving away. We're five, ten minutes away, and this particular daughter had left her panda in the bathroom of the the place. She's beside herself. She's the daddy, please, can we turn around, go back, get the panda, whose name was Israelite, by the way. <laughs> so we had to be somewhere. We're like five, ten minutes away. You know how that is. And I'm cold-hearted father. So I said, no. You know, like, no, we're not going back, sweetie. So all the kids begin to cry in the back seat. They begin to hurl abuse at me, which maybe was deserved. But I stood firm. No, I'm sorry, Israelite's gone, we're going home. 
she sowed those tears. She sowed those tears, and wouldn't you know, a couple of months later, out of nowhere, somebody, a friend, not knowing any of this, gives her two pandas. So she gets those, and the joy, the tears come again, the joy in, in having two pandas after she lost one was greater, I think, because she went through that trauma. I think if somebody would just hand her two pandas and she didn't lose one, you know, that's nice, thank you. But it was the loss. It was the difficulty. It was the pain in her little heart that promoted and produced a greater joy. That's the principle. That's how God works. That's who He is on a greater scale in our lives. I think the joy that God wants to give us, He can't unless we go through stuff. Like we just, it wouldn't work. We couldn't feel it. The same. And some of you know that. You know that experientially. The things you've gone through have produced something that you couldn't have otherwise. If He just gave it to you, it wouldn't have been the same. You had to go through it. And I think some of you have a hard time believing that. You have a hard time believing God's heart is to do great things for you, that His heart is joy. You feel more comfortable, honestly, with difficulty. Um, you prefer rain to sunshine. You like winter in South Dakota. You're an enigma. I, don't, I can't explain it. But the psalm says it is normal and right for God to do great things for you. Normal. Right. Natural as an overflow of the heart of God. It makes total sense, given who God is, that He would do great things for you. Whether it's spiritual or physical, it doesn't matter. You're cured from cancer or you become less selfish by the time you die. Great things. That is normal for the God that we serve. He loves to do that. He loves it. I saw where a daughter said this about her father, a very serious and austere man. He was entirely unselfish. In his long life, he never committed a pleasure. May that never be said of you or me. May God fill your life with songs of joy, whether you like it or not. That's his heart. He wants us committing many pleasures in Him. And you know, He makes us wait sometimes for that in order to create faith in our hearts. That's even more important. What is pleasing to God? Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. So He makes us wait on the joy in order to produce faith that it will come, and that makes us more like Jesus, and our joy is greater. You see? Some of you feel entitled to his goodness because you've been a good little boy or a good little girl. This is a common myth in Christianity. If I do the right thing and just fill in the blank to whatever that is, if I do the right thing, if I get it right, if I do it right, if I do that, mm, 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 it will keep bad things from happening. I've, I've, I've bought my it, keep bad things from happening insurance policy if I do the right thing. 
I, I've grown that hedge of protection around me. I always get a little nervous when I hear that from a pastor. God wants to put a hedge of protection around you. So it's like, well, okay. We've got to process that. We've got to think about that. We've got to have good theology there. Is it because of what I did? What if I, got, what if I did everything right and something bad happened? Who is God then to me? You know, um, Jesus was pretty good. He did the right thing pretty much every time. And he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. So let's just put that myth to bed. Let's put it to rest. That is not how things work. That is not how God works. The truth is always better. And the truth is, when you put yourself in Yahweh's hands... Sorrow produces joy. This light momentary affliction that comes into your life is producing, is achieving an eternal weight of glory, of joy. It's achieving something. It's not wasted, ever. Let me briefly explain verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to spend our time mainly on verses 4 through 6. So look at verse 1 with me. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, so notice the tense, past tense. Something bad happened and God did a grand reversal. He restored them. Now, maybe, possibly, this is return from exile. You remember with Israel, 586 B.C., because of their sin, they're thrown into captivity, ripped from their homes, their farms, marched into Babylon, Jerusalem is burned, temple is burned, no hope of a future except for in the promises of God. In 70 years, God made them wait. 70 years until he brought them back. So this may be in the psalmist's mind. It certainly would have been in Israel's consciousness. They're very aware of this, like the Exodus. We were like those who dream. Dreams were often how God communicated or revealed his will in these times. Um, so this isn't our language of my dream has always been to return from exile. It's not like this wish or kind of hope. It's like, no, I'm amazed that God is revealing to us that he's actually doing this. Like those in a dream, like where God is showing you something or doing something through your dream, they're experiencing it, maybe. Could be anything. Could be anything. Could be something small in his life. We don't know. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has great, done great things for us. We are glad. Verse 4, and I have three points. Number one, expect tears. Now we come into the present. Out of the past, into the present. Verse 4, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Now, the Negev was the desert wilderness south of Jerusalem. So he's in a drought. Sin is winning. Bible reading and prayer are hard. The church is in a dry season. The family dinner table is filled with tension. Someone close to me is making a mess of their life. Lord, make me, make us, make them fruitful again, is what he prays. 
You've been there. You will be there. Walking with God means tears. Walking with God means tears. It just does. You never wept over your sin before God saved you. You might have wept because you got caught, but you didn't weep over your sin. Did you weep over grace before God saved you? How good He is? How undeserved His mercy? You didn't you weren't very sensitive to evil. You certainly weren't as sensitive. You weren't as sensitive to beauty. Where things would move you emotionally that should move you emotionally. A sign of maturity in the Lord is that your heart is more touchable. Think of it that way. Ezekiel 11 tells us that God is going to give His people through Jesus and through the Spirit a heart of flesh. What's the opposite of that? Heart of stone. That's what you used to have if you're in Christ. So your heart is more touchable. It feels, which makes perfect sense. You're feeling things more the way God feels them. Evil bothers you more. Beauty enthralls you more. The bad things are worse. The good things are sweeter when you're in Christ because your heart is new. It's fleshy, touchable, soft. And, and sometimes this happens dramatically, like a, like a flood, like a rainstorm, what he references here. Just boom. God does something dramatic and life. Sometimes it happens in a church. It's wilderness, 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 and then boom, God does something big. And it's like, wow, that's better. But sometimes it's slower. Sometimes it's a slower path, gradual process, like planting and harvesting. Number two, sow tears. Expect tears and sow tears. Verse five, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Here's the principle. You shouldn't stuff your feelings and you shouldn't worship your feelings. You should sow them. It's not healthy. It's not biblical. It's not Christ-like to suppress everything. And also, it's not good to worship how you feel, which is what our culture, secularism, tells you. You are what you feel. In fact, your body needs to get in alignment with how you feel. It's all about in here. There's nothing physical that can tell you any truth. It's all about how you feel. It's how you think. It's, you know, you worship that. You bow down to that. You obey that. The Psalms strike the balance between not suppressing and not worshiping our feelings. Not suppressing, not worshiping. So, the Psalms tell us to, to have an emotional openness in the service of the glory of God. An emotional openness in the service of the glory of God. Not in my glory. It's a generalization, but religious people tend to stuff their feelings. Secular people tend to verbalize them. I think sometimes better than us. A lot of times better. You know, sometimes it's really refreshing to meet someone, talk to them who's just very open 
would you say? There's not like this super 12-layer carbon filter on everything they say and do. It's just a little bit open. You know, it's like, oh, that's kind of refreshing. Carrie and I are a little different in this way. Okay, I tend to be, you know, more internal, and I don't verbalize, and I, I just stay, and she is not. Like, she's out with it. And that's one thing I love about her. It's refreshing. Like, if we were water filtration systems, I'd be reverse osmosis. She would be tap. It's just, I love it. Like, it's good. It's a healthy balance. We, 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 we shape each other. <laughs> it's a generalization, but Midwest people tend to stuff their feelings. If you agree, just do a very slight nod. You bet. Okay, maybe men more than women. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, we'll take that. But your tears are God's seeds. Your tears are God's seeds. You have to sow them. How? How do you sow your sorrows? Well, first and foremost, you pray them. You pray them. You give them to God. You sow them into His economy, into His field. You share them with your church family, and you experience them. It's important. You don't suppress. You don't escape. You don't deny. And you don't pretend everything's fine. How are you? Fine. Really? You have to experience them. You have to embrace them, knowing, 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 believing that if you sow those tears into God, it will produce joy. That's amazing. I heard Eugene Peterson say that Christians need to learn to cuss without cussing. Yeah, we do. Do you know how to cuss without cussing to God? If you don't, just keep reading the Psalms. That's what they're doing. My plan is to, to use British cuss words because they don't mean bad things to us. We'll see how that goes. Maybe the Holy Spirit will convict me. I don't know. Tim Keller says that um, at times Christians need to pray and catch this. Pre-reflective outbursts from the very depths of our being in the presence of God. Pre-reflective outbursts. Meaning, don't overthink it. Don't try it. How many of you feel so much pressure when you pray? That you got to get it right. you got to say the right thing. you got to, you know, the proper prayer, and especially if somebody else is listening. Look out. It's like a war inside. Sometimes just don't think about it so much. Just pray your heart. Just pray your heart, have it, an outburst. Cuss without cussing. We have to do that. In God's hands, your tears don't just give way to joy, they produce joy if you sow them. Christianity says, no, 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 you don't just have to get through this. Isn't that how we think? If I just get through this, this hard season, get through it. This hard day, get through it. No. God is going to work through it, is what we say. How hopeful is that? How much better is that than just, you know, hang on. 
How can we say that? How can we say that God's going to grow something more beautiful than what was ugly? It's just audacious. Like, it's ridiculous. How can we say that? Because our Savior sowed His tears. And look what they produced. Jesus lived through the desert, the Negev, of suffering. And it produced something. A beautiful garden of fruitful people. I'm looking at it. He sowed with tears of blood. I don't even know how that's possible medically or what that means, but it's hard. That's all I get out of it. Incredibly hard. The hardest thing that anyone has ever done. And he knew it in Gethsemane. And he sowed the tears. And he sowed it. Guys, he sowed the tears so that you and I would never have to sing a song of lament again. That day is coming when the only song we will sing is joy. Now in part, one day in full, he sowed his very life to produce a resurrection, your resurrection. Listen to how God poetically describes this. Jesus' sacrifice, what it would achieve in Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. So the the earth, the actual earth will be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. I had to look that up. It's a flower. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord. The majesty of our God. That's just a picture of what life will be like when this earth is made new. Any of you who believe that Jesus died for your sins, you will participate in it. That is your future. And I want that for everybody here. Can't earn it. Can't work for it. Can only receive it as a gift of God's grace. See, Jesus sowed his life. He gave it away. He laid it down. And the Father honored that by raising him from the dead and giving him great, great joy, the joy that was set before him, his people. And that's why you can be confident he'll do the same for you. If he did it for Jesus, he will do it for you because you are in him by faith. Number three, reap joy. We expect tears, we sow the tears, but we reap joy. Verse 6. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Joy isn't something you can buy. I mean, we went to a comedy show recently, and it was really funny. We laughed really hard. But I wouldn't say it was joy. I mean, we paid for it. It's fine. It's good. Like, I needed a good laugh, but I don't think joy is something you can buy or conjure up on your own. I think it's an overflow of being filled with the goodness of God. It just spills over. It just happens. It's, it's, it comes out of abundance. 
It's a natural harvest. Laughter, real laughter, like the best kind, is not nervous giggles or you know, coming from anxiety or defensiveness. It is delight bubbling up from the promises of God. It is the result of choosing to look away from yourself and toward God. And that's really hard when you're going through a trial. But that's what we need to do. I want to look at me, me, me. I got to look outside myself. That's where joy is found. So is the Christian life hard? Yes. But it's also fun. It's also fun. Can I have an amen? Please. Oh my gosh, you people. You get a front row seat for miracle after miracle, grace upon grace. Like, you have a reason to laugh. You have a reason to be happy, joyful every day. You have a reason to have deeper crow's feet on your eyes from smiling than anybody else. You have more of a reason. There's a story of Martin Luther's close friend, Philip Melanchthon. And Melanchthon was a calm, stoic, man of few words. Anybody know anyone like that? Luther wasn't any of those things. And one day he lost patience with Melanchthon's uh, virtuously reserved demeanor and nature. And he said, for heaven's sake, why don't you go out and sin a little? God deserves something to forgive you for. You get the point. Like, loosen up, Phil. Like, go live your life. Have a little joy. You're, you're a Christian for crying out loud. I know, you know, your circumstances aren't great. I know we don't have indoor plumbing, but God is great. God is great. He loves you. He's done great things for you. Have a little fun. What keeps you from joy in Christ? Let me give you a couple enemies of joy. Number one, trying to eliminate things that hurt. It's not possible. <laughs> but we try. Uh, eliminate risks. Trying, I don't eat this, I don't do that, I don't go there, I don't. Keeping people at a distance, keeping a church at a distance, because I don't want to be disappointed. I don't want to get hurt. I, you know, that happened to me over here. I don't want it to happen again, so eh, nope, not going to let that happen. Or you have hard days and you numb them with alcohol or three helpings at dinner, whatever is your flavor, you know, you numb it. Try to eliminate it, try to get rid of it, try to avoid it one way or the other. And they're just dead ends. They're joy killers. It is impossible to eliminate all the hard things in your life, but you can exhaust yourself by trying. I guarantee you that. When they come, embrace them, believing God has brought this in order to produce deeper joy in my life. Amazing. Second enemy of joy, self-pity. Self-pity is the tendency to feel sorry for yourself because you're not getting what you think you deserve. So tempting. So tempting. 
Self-pity is pride in action. I deserve better. It is selfish sadness. Why me? Why me? What did I do to deserve this? You know, self-pity brings tears, but they're not the good kind. You're not crying because you're sad that something bad has happened according to God or that someone else has been hurt. You're sad because you're self-focused and it's about me. So I'm crying about me. I deserve better. Uh, that's, that's the mantra of self-pity. I deserve better. It makes you a small little person. You have no energy for God, no interest in others. You can't forgive. You're overly sensitive to slights. You're impatient. You're angry because all your energy is saved up for being sad for you. That's where all your energy is going. All your thought life is coming. Just comes right back to you. Doesn't go out. Doesn't go up. And so you're exhausted and you're sad. And here's the thing, guys. It's super dangerous because it seems so legitimate. Does that make sense? Like, look what happened to me. Look what they did to me. Look at my life. Look at this problem. Yeah, I see it. And so it feels mm, very legitimate to feel sorry for yourself. One author says this, self-pity can destroy your life more quickly than anything else. It is to be resisted with every fiber of your being. We are bombarded with opportunities to feel sorry for ourselves. Every day we're misunderstood, overworked, underappreciated. Regularly something unfair will happen. You get sick. You miss a flight. Something says, somebody says something. Not real nice. It almost can become addicting. I think I know people who are addicted to self-pity. And I want them to be free. What's the antidote? You have to look at the cross. You have to look at the cross. What do you truly deserve, brothers and sisters? The wrath of God forever. And what did you get? The grace of God. The mercy of God, the love of God, the abundance of God, the blessing of God, the inheritance of God, everything good that God has to give, you got it. That changes your perspective, doesn't it? It puts everything else in its place. I'm not saying what's happening or happened isn't hard. I'm saying we need perspective. And the gospel and the cross of Jesus Christ gives us that. And we need to look there over and over again, especially when we find our thoughts going to me, 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 and how could this happen to me in my, my life, and da-da-da-da-da, look at Jesus. Look what you deserved, and look what you got. You know, the only person who actually deserved to indulge in self-pity was Jesus Christ. He didn't do anything wrong. He didn't deserve anything, and what did He do? He was too busy worshiping the Father and caring about you to think about Himself. And he gave his life so that you would know in all your trials, all your tears, joy is coming. 
Joy is coming. One day, we will be home. We will feast in that house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. We will say together, He has done great things. Blessed be the name of the Lord forever and ever and ever, now in part, and on that day in full, believe it. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the promise that what we sow in tears, You will bring a harvest of joy. It's unbelievable, Lord, but it's just Your heart. And I pray, I pray, I pray, I pray that a little bit more we would believe that is Your heart. Not misery, not sadness. You're wiping that all away progressively. And one day dramatically when Jesus returns. We long for that day. Help us, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.